This is a lightning storm, a thunderstorm that is unprecedented. So we don't know exactly what is happening in the air, but it's catastrophic. We're told a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the Revelation, today we begin a look at the final bold judgment that God executes on the earth during the time known as the Tribulation. We've seen that these judgments followed two other sets of judgments, the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments, but the bold judgments are by far the worst. They are marked by a pollution of all the water sources in the world and horribly devastating fires. After this, a time of great darkness pervades the earth. And as we pick up today, we see that despite all these judgments, the majority of the population refuses to believe in God and actually blasphemes Him. Jesus said, men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. And now God is giving them a taste of total darkness. Verse 11, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. This combination of sores and starvation from the lack of drinkable water and food from the oceans and the sun that is burning their skin and the utter blacky black, you would think they would call upon the Lord God to save them, but they don't. They blaspheme him. Man has reached the pinnacle of his hardness of heart. And hell is described in such terms. Jesus said in Matthew 25, throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now God wrote this not just for this future generation that may be pouring over the revelation, but he wrote this for us. This book has been read for 21 centuries of time. He is writing this for young men and young women, for adults here today, that we might warn people of the wrath that is going to come. Hell is a real place with real people, and it will last for a real eternity. And here they blaspheme the God of heaven. Verse 12, the sixth bowl comes. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings of the earth. Now, the source of water for the river Euphrates is Mount Ararat. And with the sun scorching the earth, there was a rapid melt, and it probably washed away every single bridge all the way across that great river. But there's also a rapid drying. The whole riverbed is dried so that the armies of the east can march towards Jerusalem. Now, who are these kings from the east? They're not named, but everything, all the directions in Scripture are in reference to Israel. So it would include such nations possibly like China or India or Japan and other eastern powers. And I saw verse 13, coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. Now, remember, under the old covenant, God distinguished his people, among other things, by the diet that they had. 
And then the unclean meats that God said a Jew could not eat, included in them were such little creatures like frogs. God said they couldn't eat frogs. And of course, frogs were abominable to Jewish people, especially because of what they symbolized in terms of the demonic realm. They spent 400 years down in Egypt, and the frog god called Hekka was worshipped. Remember those plagues that came upon Egypt? God didn't say, well, what should we do next? Well, let's give them uh, flies, or let's give them frogs. No, each of the plagues represented a different false god that the Egyptians worshipped. You like the frog god? I'll give you some frogs. And God covered the land in frog. Well, here, we don't have literal frogs. It's a simile here. We're told they are like frogs. And what do the frogs stand for? He tells us three unclean spirits. Now, when Jesus came here and his disciples ministered on earth, they expelled demons. Here, Satan, through his ministry, he invites demons to come and to deceive people. And God is allowing the kings of the whole earth to be deceived. These demon spirits capture the hearts and the minds of the kings to march against Israel. The mouth of the dragon, from the mouth of the beast, and from the mouth of the false prophet. One might say from the lying mouth of Satan, from the lying mouth of the Antichrist, and from the lying mouth of the false prophet. Three demons are at work, and they will amass a worldwide army towards this place we'll read in a moment called Armageddon. Now, these are signs, but these are not holy signs. These are demonic signs. These are what Paul calls lying signs, lying wonders. Remember, John loves the word sign. It's a specialized word for miracle. Samuel, he uses it throughout his gospel and in the Revelation to describe a miracle with a message. Well, here is a miracle with a message, but it's from the pit of hell in order to deceive men. Verse 14 elaborates, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Now, some pastors have a field day. They like to be dramatic and colorful, and they try to tell you who the leaders are. The fact is we don't know who these leaders are, and we won't know until this day comes, and I'm not planning to be here for this day. But in either case, the kings of the world will gather together, and they will march towards the war of that great day of God the Almighty. This unholy trinity that mimics the holy trinity headed by Satan, his Antichrist, and the false prophet. Satan taking the place of the Father, Antichrist taking the place of the Son, and the false prophet who points men to the Antichrist taking the place of the Holy Spirit. They will be in full operation during this time. And of course, God tells us that there's coming a world campaign against Israel. Zechariah speaks of it, as does Revelation 19. Let me give you a sneak preview. We're still many sermons away from 1919. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. That's the battle of Armageddon. And it is these three demon-like spirits that will lead people to this place. 
Zechariah chapter 14, in describing what will happen when Jesus comes back from earth, says this in the 12th verse. Now, this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet, and their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongue will rot in their mouths. This description of flesh, of eyes, of tongues rotting is not a result of some nuclear disaster, again, as colorful preaching will make. This comes from the hand of God Almighty and all the plagues in the Revelation. None of them are man-made. They come directly from heaven itself. The Lord will strike, says the prophet Zechariah. This is indeed the war of the great day of God Almighty. Now, remember, 21 judgments. And if you don't understand the architecture of the Revelation, it gets somewhat confusing. If you remember, as this next chart shows us, we began with the seven-sealed scroll there in Revelation chapter 6. Seven seals that were opened one at a time, beginning with the four horsemen of the apocalypse, then all those people who are martyred by the millions some cosmic changes, and then before the seventh seal, which contains seven trumpets, there's a pause in the narrative. And God will do this all the way through Revelation. It's not a pause in action, it's a pause in the narrative to either reflect or to preview on what is taking place in the world. And so if you remember, between the sixth and seventh seal there in Revelation 7, we saw 144,000 Jewish men witnessing and bringing the gospel to the whole world. That will happen during the final seven years. Jesus said, this gospel shall preach to all the nations and then the end shall come. That's a fulfillment of something that will happen in this coming day, not that we shouldn't aim at it today. And so then in the seventh seal are contained seven trumpets, as this next chart reminds us. We've been studying those uh, six trumpets, and if you remember, between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, once again, there's a break in the narrative to reflect and to look ahead. It tells us what has been going on and what is going to come, that interlude there in chapters 10 through 14. And then if you remember, the seventh trumpet is blown, and in the seventh trumpets are contained the seven bowls of God's wrath. And that's where we are here in chapter 16. They were introduced to us in the 15th chapter, but then they are unfolded here in the 16th chapter. But once again, between the sixth bowl and the seventh bowl in verses 13 through 16, where we've been working, there is an interlude both to reflect and a preview of what God is going to do. And by the way, each of these interludes are introduced with the phrase, and I saw. It's a structural marker throughout the book. So picking up in verse 15 in the interlude where we were last time, where we left off, verse 15, Jesus said, this is new ground, behold, I am coming like a thief, blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and then will not see his shame. Now, we know from the end of verse 14 that this utterance in verse 15 is a direct quote from God the Father himself, the same quotation that Christ, the Son of God, makes in the Olivet Discourse. John says that God is coming like a thief. 
something that is sudden, something that is unexpected, and people will be overtaken. Jesus said this in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, 43, but be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. Jesus is speaking of this same truth. He is in Matthew 24 and 25 unfolding the seven years of the great tribulation, and he reminds us that the end of the tribulation will come like a thief in the night. Now, most of the time, we hear hear the phrase, the thief in the night, and we relate it only to the rapture, especially if you became a Christian in the 1970s because there was a popular movie that was released that year called A Thief in the Night. And it was of a young lady, the theme of the movie, who gets left behind and she misses the rapture and she's here for the great tribulation period. But actually, the concept of the thief in the night, while it is applied to the rapture, it is principally applied to this final seven years in history. The Apostle Paul says the day of the Lord, which if you remember, happens and commences after the rapture of the church, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And so Jesus speaks of this time as a thief in the night. It can be applied to the rapture. And so at the church at Sardis, he describes it in that way. But it is typically in reference to the second coming. So in Matthew 24, 29, and this is important because think about this. It's a seven-year schematic. And so if the thief in the night metaphor that Jesus uses refers to the end of the seven years, it seems like you could pinpoint the day and the hour. And yet when Jesus said no one knows the day or the hour, he's not talking about the rapture, though that certainly would apply to the rapture. In the context, he's applying it to the second coming. Well, it seemed like you could date the second coming. No, you cannot. Follow now. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 29, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, plural, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, we don't know how many days thereafter, if you were with me in my final sermon in Daniel, then we saw this indiscriminate number of days that the prophet mentions at the end of time. We don't know if it's three days after the 70th week of Daniel is over or a week, but it's a short time because the Revelation says in the opening verse that when it happens, it comes fast. It comes quickly. He uses the word taxus. We get our word taxometer from it. And then the son of the son of man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. So no one knows the day or the hour. Certainly it applies to the rapture as in the church of Sardis, Revelation chapter 3. But it also equally applies to the second coming. And so here in verse 15... In this beatitude, we like to say blessed. I don't know why every time we recite the beatitudes, we say blessed or blessed, blessed. That's old English. We'd say today blessed. So blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and then will not see his shame. So not knowing the exact time of 
Christ's visible return to the earth, and certainly not knowing the exact time of when the rapture takes place. In some ways, that's even a greater thief in the night, because there's never been a single prophecy since the day of Pentecost that is needed to be fulfilled for the rapture to happen, but all kinds of prophecies for the second coming, because that's a prophecy-driven event. We need to be ready. We need to have the right clothes on. And we've seen already in our study of clothes in the Revelation that John uses it in two ways, both of positional righteousness and of experiential righteousness. Jesus uses it, for instance, of positional righteousness in Matthew 22. He says, but when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, It's kind of like a picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb, and Jesus is the King. And he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the King said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be no, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That parable describes salvation clothes. You need salvation clothes if you're going to go to heaven. If you're going to go to heaven, you must be as righteous as God himself. And there's no way you can earn or achieve that because we've already messed it up through our sin. But God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become, because we weren't before, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. When you trust Jesus as Lord, he gives you, he imputes to your account the very righteousness that he has. He took your sin upon himself and in exchange, he imputes you with his righteousness. That's the wedding clothes that you need. That's positional righteousness. And if you try to achieve it on your own, you'll never get it because Isaiah said your righteous deeds, not your worst deeds, but your best deeds, your righteous deeds are as filthy rags in God's sight. But the Bible also in the Revelation speaks of practical righteousness. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. When the rapture comes, Jesus will come back, and he wants you to be awake. And certainly, those who are living during the time of the tribulation, which is what at hand, they need to be awake. Why? Because this will be the wickedest time in human history. The Spirit of God and his restraining influence, 2 Thessalonians 2 says, will be removed off the earth. Hell will literally have a holiday. Sin will be widespread. You can be immoral with just about anyone you want to be. And those living during the tribulation will still have their fallen sin nature. And they have to decide whether or not they're going to walk with Christ and not be tempted by the lures of the evil one. Because sin will be widespread like the world has never, ever, ever seen in all of recorded history. And if you want to be unfaithful to your wife, you could be a thousand times over. Sin will reign in this day. Immorality like the world has never, ever, ever seen it before. And God wants us to be right, not only positionally. You can't be like Adam who tries to cover his shame with the work of his hands, but he needs to learn that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. And so God makes animal skins. He teaches a lesson pointing to the ultimate blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But you are called as a believer to walk in that righteousness. And God is clear that for the unbeliever, when he comes, God will be ashamed of them. 
He describes those who are unwilling to publicly, openly confess him before men. That's not something that saves you, but it's something that follows salvation. That's why Jesus said, if you won't confess me before men, I'll not confess you before my Father. And in one of those dialogues, he says, of such people, God will be ashamed. But God also speaks in the book of 1 John chapter 2 of believers who will shrink back in shame. They will be embarrassed when Jesus comes to catch us up in the air, as will, I'm sure, some tribulation saints. Verse 16. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now, here's a picture of Armageddon. If you go to Israel, we've stood on this place many, many, many times. It's an elevated hill of sorts. It's a, it's a mountain. Har is the Hebrew word for mountain or hill. Armageddon means the mountain or the hill of Armageddon. In Greek, it comes out Armageddon. Now, Armageddon was a very well-known place to first-century readers. And this is a place today that we often refer to as Tel Megiddo. Megiddo is this elevated city, ancient city, and overlooks the Jezreel Valley. And people, Christians, often call this valley the Valley of Armageddon. There is actually no such valley, that's Christianese, but it is the launching place, it's the setup place where the armies of the world will gather as they begin to march over a course of 200 miles up and down Israel, and they will ultimately attack the city of Jerusalem itself. We're going to study that. Today, we refer to this as a tell. What is a tell? A tell is not only a, a hill or a mountain that God made, but a hill or a mountain that grew because it was man-made. So how did tells develop? Well, initially, if you were going to settle someplace, two things were critical. You needed some height to build your city so that if the enemy came, you could protect yourself best if you were in an elevated ground. And secondly, you needed a water source. And of course, both those things are found here. And so you'd go ahead and you'd build on the city and and you'd establish your homes, and someone else with greed in their eyes would say, hey, that's a nice spot. We'd like to have it. And so they would attack you, and they'd crumble it. They usually would burn a city. That's how you would attack it in ancient days. And after a while, the mound of dirt got a little bit higher, and the next civilization would come along, and they'd build on top of that mound of dirt, and, and someone else would greed in their eyes would say, hmm, I like that city, and they attack it, and they burn it, and it crumbles, and another group comes along, and it gets higher and higher, and another city comes, and one after another, and the tail gets higher and higher and higher and higher and higher. In fact, if you go to Tel Megiddo today, they, they've taken a slice out of the side of it, and you can count the different levels of civilization. There's at least 26 different levels of civilizations that were on this tell. Now, if the picture I just showed you of Tel Megiddo was exactly how it looked in John's day, because no one has ever lived on it since the Apostle John's day. But for centuries, this was a critical place, and it is going to become the launching place where the armies of the world will come together to plan an attack against the nation of Israel there in the valley of Jezreel. 
Now, that's a sneak preview that John gives us of this place called Armageddon. He's mentioned it briefly, but we're going to study it more fully when we come to chapters 19 and 20. Now, you say, when are we going to get started on the sermon? You haven't even hit Roman numeral one. Okay, I'm ready. And I'm actually almost done, so stay with me. Here, I want you to think about the sentence that will be rendered. Having looked at the first six bowls of wrath and this interlude that follows, now we come to the seventh bowl of wrath where the sentence will be rendered. I want you to see the sentence that will be rendered. We're told now in verse 17, then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. Now, it's interesting to note that the bowl of this seventh angel is poured out upon the air, and it results in a catastrophe upon the air. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. Some think, well, this is military aircraft. Again, let the Scriptures speak for themselves. None of these things are the kind of uh, sensations that Hal Lindsey produced in his book, Late Great Planet Earth, to sell millions of copies. It's just sheer nonsense, some of the things that he came up with. But something happens in the realm of the air. I don't know. Maybe it's an asteroid. The text doesn't tell us, so I can't make something up. But I do know that it's not what Hal and others have said, because this plague, like all the plagues, are directly from God Himself in heaven. Maybe it's some of the lightning and thunder and this terrible storm that comes. I've only been through one terrible lightning storm that really, I mean, just frightened us. We just thought the house was going to fall apart. And it was on my son, Jameson's, fourth birthday, and we had turned off the lights, and the house was shaking, and the thunder was blasting, and Audrey carried out the cake, and then, boom, and 15 yards away, a tree, our tree there, literally was hit by lightning. Thousands of leaves were on flames. It came down like a birthday candle, and the tree was peeled like a banana. It was absolutely beautiful. They had it on the news the next day. This is a lightning storm, a thunderstorm that is unprecedented. So we don't know exactly what is happening in the air, but it's catastrophic. We're told a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. A loud voice, a mega voice, a great voice, phonomega, we reverse it and we say megaphone. A loud voice comes out of the temple and God shouts, it is done. It's one word in Greek. From the cross with a great sense of joy, for the joy set before him, Jesus shouted, it is finished concerning our redemption. Now God shouts, it is done concerning the wrath of these 21 judgments before the final eternal wrath of God. And again, Jesus said, unless these days had been cut short, no one could have survived. There would be no one left to enter his millennial kingdom in terms of living subjects. To listen again to today's study, Armageddon and the Seventh Bowl, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and asking for program REV46. 
And when you contact us, why not help support Search the Scriptures with a one-time gift or perhaps a recurring gift? Your financial support allows us to purchase airtime on radio stations and to expand the Word of God in various areas in the U.S. and around the world on the Internet. For more information, call 877-787-7478. Thank you. Tomorrow, Dr. Brugge's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll conclude our look at Armageddon and the Seventh Bowl. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.